Hello and welcome to episode three of Folia Dare. Hi. Hello, this is Elle. Hello. And I am Amy. And we are going to do a podcast. <laughs> We've done two. Another one might be good. We'll see how it goes. Three is the magic number. <laughs> Great intro. So, how have you been? I'm good. Better this week. We both had a bit of a cold last week. Yes. Not very so good. So much better. Fantastic. Just so you know, we've done about four mic checks to make sure that this week our mics are actually going to work in tip-top condition because um, we finished the podcast last week and Elle had to run off to work. I sat down to look into editing it and there was like this really annoying buzz coming from my microphone. Elle's mic and you couldn't for the life of us work it out and I had to learn how to edit everything because it was Easton's birthday last week. Um, so we didn't want to give her any work. So I had to learn how to do noise reduction and everything. Um, so hopefully this one's going to sound... But speaking of Easton's birthday last week, Elle and I met with Easton and our friend Mark as well um, for a... Well, we were hungover, mm-hmm. hungover spoons. Elle had been ill, so she didn't come out. But um, what happened in spoons, Elle? Oh, we had a delightful um, experience with... Um, would you say a member of royalty? <laughs> You definitely knew them. But, yeah, a friend of the family. <laughs> a friend of the royal family. Basically, so this guy, we're sitting in a booth. Uh, there's a booth to the right of us and a booth to the left of us. And I don't know whether you have Weatherspoons wherever you live, but in the UK, it's like this pub where you go up to the bar and order to your table. This gentleman comes to the table to the right of us, goes to the people who are sitting there. It's like a family of three. And he's like, hi, I've ordered food to your table. <laughs> and, the, and the people on there were really quite a lot more polite than I think. Very understanding. Yeah. More than I expected. Whereas if that was us, I'd be like, um, what a shame. Okay. And then he just sat down on their table. Although it seemed he didn't quite get what he wanted out of the conversation they were having. <laughs> Because then five minutes later, stood up, did the same routine with the table. Was it to the left to of the us? To the left of us, yeah. Again, hi, just wanted to let you know that I've ordered food to this table. And we've seen him grab, he was sitting on the table to the right of us, and he like, grabbed a waitress, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And he was like, hi, um, I've ordered food to this table. Can you actually take it to that table, please? And she was like, yeah, okay. But there was people sat on that table mm-hmm. to the left of us as well. Yeah. And then they eventually left. And Elle, would you like to reenact the phone call that then happened? Or the phone call with floating... Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> Actually, scratch that. The phone didn't ring. The phone... I would even argue that the phone was not I have a strong on a suspicion call. the phone wasn't on. <laughs> Hello? Oh, hi, Prince William. Hello. How's Harry? And to watch we, at this point, we kind of turned to this guy and the smug look on his face as if he thought, oh, I've got them. And we didn't want to attract further attention to us mm-hmm. because he hadn't tried to sit at our table. But me and Amy just looked at each other and kind of looked up. And you're like, did that, did he, did he just say Prince William? Prince William. Harry? <laughs> 
And then he just con- continued on with his day, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was bizarre. That whole situation in Spoons actually was bizarre. But it was just like maybe one in the afternoon on Mark like a had Monday. fallen asleep because <laughs> he was so tired. He's <laughs> gone quiet all of a sudden. We were having a debate and then I turned to Mark and I was like, oh, Mark, what do you think? As to which Mark was not conscious and kind of like jumped in his sleep and he was like, sorry, I, I just didn't get any of that. So, yeah, we were all a bit fragile after that night. Mm. But, uh, another really interesting thing that's come to the UK, this sounds like an ad, it's absolutely not, um, is something called Murder Trial Live, which... Ooh, tell me more. Well, we were going to go, weren't we? But Elle can't get it off of work. So a couple of other people from work are going to come. So there's about five of us. And basically, it's kind of like a night where you go into a tent and it's a fake, or like the set of a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And then you get to participate in this case um, of the murder of two young boys as part of the jury so you get to make like decisions and it's really quite interactive i'm really looking forward to it it sounds so good i'm so excited i'm so sad you couldn't get shifts mm-hmm. along um but yeah check it out obviously if you're into true crime which i kind of guess you would be otherwise we are not for you no <laughs> i definitely don't want to hear about this yeah give it a look it's themurdertriallive.co.uk I'm going to say that off the top of my head I may be lying to you Um, but give it a shot (laughs) the tickets standard tickets are like 25 quid but it's from 7 till 11pm the day I'm going anyway but they also do matinees and things like that who went last week? did I go last week? oh it's you first it's me isn't it? sit back and relax so my story this week I do talk about quite often Mm -hmm. because one of my interests I love a mystery. And we're so different in that Mm -hmm. sense. Because I love answers. People are very divided. Yeah, I love the feeling of like, oh, but what if it was this? What if it was this? My brain goes crazy trying to figure out what the answer is. And I like that. I like that too. But I like it in the Golden State Killer where it's like, Oh my God, who was he? What happened? 40 minutes forty minutes later? You know who he is? No, 40 years later, you find out. But That's be- my kind of thing. But before we knew who he was, yeah. was that another case that you didn't like? No, that he was absolutely fascinating. I, mm. I, I do thoroughly enjoy them. It just gets to the end of like a cold case or something like that, which I've read or mm. like watch a documentary about. And then I'm like, but who did it? But you just want more yeah i just want to i want a name and i want to know i want to know why mm-hmm. i always want to know why and i think i get a bit frustrated strap yourself in <laughs> because i have no answers for you at all that's fun <laughs> you've told me this one before i think mm-hmm. i think this might be the reason we do in a podcast to be fair you definitely told me this we were sat outside yeah we were in your the flat car. in the car yeah mm-hmm. so it all began so, this is the case of Maura Murray. So, I'm going to take you to 7.27pm. It's Monday the 9th of February, 2004. A local woman calls the police to report a car accident on a main road, visible from her window. 
The woman said that she heard a loud thump outside of the house, looked outside and saw that a car had kind of swerved into a snowbank that had built up on the side of the road on Route 112. The local woman gave police further details. She said the car was facing west on the eastbound side of the road and that inside the vehicle she'd seen a man smoking. West on the east side, so it was on the wrong side of the road? Yes. Okay. Interesting. A neighbour to this lady had also called the police to report the accident, but they had also reported that they'd seen someone walking around the vehicle. Okay. Additionally, a local bus driver who was returning home after finishing a shift had driven past the site of the accident and stopped because he noticed that there was no police there. He found a young woman inside the vehicle and asked if she needed help. He noticed that she wasn't bleeding, she wasn't injured, but she looked cold and she was kind of visibly shivering. You would be in the snow, to be fair. In February. Yeah. Yeah. The woman declined any help. She pleaded with him not to call the police. She said she had everything under control. She'd called AAA. She had the situation down. Upon the bus driver arriving home a few minutes later at 7.43... He called the police because he thought, I still want to let them know that there's been like a traffic accident on the road. It's safety for other drivers as well, isn't it? Especially as a bus driver. Yeah, that's kind of your, the roads are your job. You want to make sure that everyone's safe. Yeah, absolutely. Another local resident had driven past the accident at around 7.37. She'd claimed to see that a police SUV was parked in front of the crashed car. But when she slowed down kind of next to it to see what was going on, there was nobody around. A Haverville police officer arrived at the accident site at around 7.46. So the first call was made at 7.27. So they got there relatively fast. Yeah, quite quickly to say that it's terrible weather conditions. It's not a huge crash. Yeah. A car is just in a snowy bank. And he didn't ring until 7.37, so really, nine minutes. Pretty speedy. When they arrive, the young woman who was reported to be there at the incident is gone, and all of the car doors are locked. Upon further inspection, no one was found in or around the area of the car. They deduced that at a hairpin turn in the road, the vehicle had swerved in the snow, and hit a tree on the driver's side, damaging the exterior of the car. The driver's side windscreen was broken. Both airbags had gone off. The impact into the tree had pushed the car radiator into the fan, meaning that it couldn't be driven. The engine just wouldn't start. He starts to look a little bit further, and both in and outside of the car, in the snow, are kind of red liquid stains that he thinks are red wine. The classic drink when you're driving. Absolutely. (laughs) Number one choice of drivers, red wine. Yeah. It relaxes you, just makes you a little bit calm. Likes the snow. Yeah. Impairs that vision. Yeah, it's a little bit chilly. Maybe mulled wine. Oh, just to warm up. Yeah, just to get your kind of blood flowing. Great. (laughs) Sure thing. When he gets inside the car... He discovers a bizarre set of items have been left. A damaged box of wine, like a carton. 
Oh, classy. <laughs> really classy. One empty beer bottle, a AAA card and some blank accident claim forms, some diamond jewellery, a teddy bear, some printed out map directions to an apartment complex in Burlington, Vermont, and a book on climbing in the White Mountains, which are in New Hampshire. Oh, I do now understand the why you thought it was red wine, though. Yeah. I do take that back. <laughs> You'd guess he had a sensible yeah. hunch. And I guess everyone keeps different stuff in their car. Well, you've seen my car. You often have <laughs> shoes, an outfit change. I have a card robe. No, what David uh, describes as a card robe. A card robe? Yeah. Well, yeah. Today, a cheese string was in the cup holder. With my AirPods. <laughs> there was an interesting mix of useful car items in Rav today. Yeah. yeah. That's because I ate three cheese strings on the way to your house. And I was so hungry after the gym. <laughs> we were going for lunch, but I couldn't wait. So I just scoffed three cheese strings. No judgment. Everyone keeps whatever they want in their own car. Yeah. But still, a little bit strange. The AAA card found inside the car was registered to Maura Murray. She's a 21-year-old nursing student from Massachusetts. She's living on campus for her first year at the University of Massachusetts. Strangely missing from the accident site were all of Murray's debit and credit cards and her phone. Okay. So she kind of left everything else. Yeah. And I guess they are the most important things. Yeah, the, the things you'd grab if you were needing to get somewhere fast. Yes. I would look at the car and I wouldn't think, box of oh, teddy bear and mountain climbing book. Yeah. And the empty box of wine. It's sensible you'd assume she has taken those items Your with valuables. Her. Yeah. The police officer who had first responded to the call and the bus driver who made the call then went on a search of the media area, hoping that if they drove round, they would find her kind of wandering through the snow. Often, if you've been involved in an accident, you're very confused and disorientated afterwards. Yeah. So they hoped that she would have just wandered off, thinking that she needed to go and get help. So by 8 o'clock, an emergency medical team and fire safety officers had arrived and by nine forty, oh, by eight forty nine, the area had been totally cleared, and the car had been towed to a garage. So, kind of in under an hour, it had been reported. Police were there. The car had been moved. That's fast. Really fast. They still can't find her. The police only started to refer to Murray as a missing person by twelve thirty six the next day, which was almost twenty four hours after the last person had seen her. Yeah. We did look up, we both kind of assumed that a person had to be missing for 24 hours before you could report, like, a missing person claim, I guess? Yeah. No, that was not true at all. Which blew my mind, actually. Yeah, it turns out that the police actually advise you to report someone missing as soon as possible. They do take this stuff quite seriously, and especially with young people and vulnerable people, kind of the sooner the better to report someone missing. Which I don't know whether we think that because of watching TV programs mm-hmm. or certain stories that you hear where police weren't kind of yeah dismissive, especially with um, teenagers in like the eighties and nineties mm-hmm. where 
they kind of are just like oh it's a runaway yeah so I don't know whether that's why we thought that but yeah I definitely didn't think it was straight away at around 20 past three the next day so this was on the Tuesday the 10th of February police try and contact Murray's dad who's out of state away working for business they leave a voicemail but they simply just explain to him they found the car abandoned we towed it away this is the address of the garage come and pick it up kind of mm. thing nothing about people seeing his daughter they didn't say anything about that Murray's older sister plays the message when she gets home and she has to call their father to pass on this information oh that's awful yeah to hear it yourself and then have to tell someone that else. the car has been found abandoned yeah So when he finally gets that message at five o'clock when he finishes work, he contacts the Haverhill police and he was told that if no one kind of gets contacted by her or if no one hears from her by the following day, that they would get the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department to begin a missing person search. That face is correct. (laughs) I don't know if I'm missing something or if I don't understand what the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department does. I can see the game side in maybe, yeah, just like tracking Mm. and stuff like that. But also, fish. Eh? (laughs) Like, you would think the police would want to do that themselves, especially with things like snow, where it could snow the night after. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it could be sunny, the prints could melt, or mm-hmm. things like this. And you're losing evidence yeah. quickly. Mm. So, no one had heard from Maura Murray. And a search began on the morning of the 11th of February. So this has been two days. At first it looked quite promising. Sniffer dogs were brought to the scene of the kind of collision. Mm-hmm. And they managed to track the scent of a glove that belonged to Murray... 100 yards east of the vehicle onto another road. But suddenly the scent was lost, which made police kind of believe at this point she might have got into another car and continued on her journey rather than on foot. By five o'clock that day on the 11th of February, Murray's family and her boyfriend had arrived in Haverhill to speak to the police. As it's kind of commonly accepted, the boyfriend or the husband or the partner is usually suspect number one. Yes. And police spent a lot of time interrogating Murray's boyfriend before returning to further question him when his parents arrived, possibly just to check that his story seemed true. Yeah. By 7pm, the police had reached a conclusion. They believed that Murray had come to this area of town to either run away or commit suicide. Her family thought this was, was the most unlikely scenario that they could have reached. She was an award-winning track athlete. She'd been recruited by several college teams, including like Ivy League schools, like really high. Yeah, you would think she had a lot to live for and a lot to yeah. want to live for. She was reported as being a really good student who had good relationships with her friends and her dorm mates and had really good connections with her family and her boyfriend as well. So they thought that was really unlikely that that would have happened to her, that Mm. she would have intended to leave. Yeah. So this is where it gets a bit strange. 
The investigation expands. The search kind of drew no results. Nothing was found. But strange kind of interesting details started to emerge. Okay. So in November of 2003, which is kind of three months before the car accident, Murray had admitted to using a stolen credit card to order food and takeaway pizzas from several different restaurants. She said that she had noted down a credit card number on the bottom of a receipt and used that to pay for things for her friends. Is that possible? Like, do they print the whole? It is in America. Oh, okay. Because they don't often use, like, chip and pen or they don't... Can't tell us an Apple Pay aren't a big thing. Okay. It's still swiping or taking credit card numbers. So it's right. quite easy to commit fraud. Another interesting thing that happened is on the evening of February the 5th, which was a couple of days before the accident, um, Maura had spoken on the phone with her older sister, Kathleen, while she was at work. They were reported to have a conversation about Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiancé and she had admitted to being like a struggling alcoholic who was going through rehab. It was quite an upsetting conversation they had on the phone. Later on that evening at around half ten, while Maura was still at work, her supervisor said that she just broke down into tears when she asked her, like, are you okay? What's wrong? Like, why are you so upset? She was completely zoned out. She was unresponsive. There was no reaction. So the supervisor took her home, and by this point, it was half one in the morning. Wow. So that's kind of been, what, like three hours since she first started to cry? Eventually, she spoke, and she just said, it's my sister. Very strange. On the Saturday before the car accident, uh, Murray had spent the day with her father. He was buying her a new car. Very nice. Very nice. So they spent the day together and Maura dropped her father off at a hotel room where he was staying and she asked to borrow his car because she wasn't kind of she wasn't getting hers yet. So they just mm-hmm. bought the car. She went back to the college campus where she went to a party and at 3.30 she went to drive back to the hotel. She was involved in a car accident and she hit kind of a railing at the side of the road. And okay. caused nearly $10,000 worth of damage to wow. her dad's car. Wow, that's a lot. At 4.49 in the morning after the accident, there was a phone call placed to her boyfriend, but from her father's phone. Okay. Um, what was spoken about was unknown, and he claims to not recall the phone call happening, even though there's evidence in call logs of them having a conversation. That is suspicious. Very strange. Then on Sunday, uh, kind of evening time, her father calls her and reminds her, look, everything's okay. The insurance is going to cover the damage to the car. It's a total accident. She hadn't been drinking. She'd been up late, but she wasn't like kind of wild partying. It was just like kind of spending time with her friends. So he reminded her, you need to go and get accident forms from like the DMV. And he said he would call her on Monday night to discuss how to fill out the forms and how to make the claim. 
on the afternoon of Monday, February the 9th, which was the day of the accident, mm-hmm. before she left the university campus, she sent an email to her university professors and to her supervisor at work to say that, unfortunately, she would have to take time away from university and from work, as it had been a death in the family. There hadn't been a death in the family. Okay. Strange. When the police had gone to her dorm room, all of her belongings were packed up into boxes and an email had been printed out and left on the top of the boxes. Okay. According to the police report, it had been an email that she had sent to her boyfriend detailing kind of the relationship issues that they were having. There was a little quote that I took from the police report that said, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call you today. I love you, Maura. So she's obviously in a really bad place. Yes. A lot of investigation was done into this strange email thread that had gone between her and her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And... There was... Very strange that it's randomly printed out and popped on some boxes there. Yeah. It seems... The way that that's left seems like she wanted someone else to read that. Yeah. I could get if... Because kind of in this time, it wasn't like you had smartphones, you couldn't check your emails wherever you are. I think I could understand if she'd printed off an email from him. To, like, take with everyone. Yeah. Like, journey. and mm-hmm. Have something that he sent, which says, like, love you. Or yeah. Especially if they're having, like, a difficult time in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Really weird. So after she packed up all of her stuff and left the university campus, she went to an ATM machine and withdrew all the available funds from her bank account, which is approximately about $280, but no one's quite sure. She then went to a liquor store and purchased several different bottles of alcohol, including Bailey's, Kahlua and vodka. These weren't recovered in the car when it was towed away. Those bottles were missing. The only thing that they did find was the box of wine and one beer bottle. Okay, so she might have been drinking. But several bottles of spirits. So... That was at around four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. So when they found the car at seven in that time, she would have had to drink several litres of different spirits, like vodka. Yeah, okay, maybe not. Strange. There was phone records that showed that she'd placed a call to the owner of one of the apartments that she had printed off directions to. Um, which it had been listed for rent, but they said that unfortunately they wouldn't be able to rent the property to her. She then ended that call, and then the last known call from her mobile phone was to check her own voicemail at 4.37. After the car was discovered, they had tracked kind of activity on her credit and debit cards and her mobile number, but none of them have been used and remain unused to this day. So why take them if you're not going to use them? Yes. Interesting. So, further information after they towed the car away 
obviously police want to check it over just to make sure that there's no kind of foul play. It was a simple car accident. All of the evidence pointed that way. The car was in good condition, everything was working fine, apart from obviously the damage that had incurred at the time. But then after the second look over, a rag that was believed to be part of like an emergency roadside kit that was also in the car had been bundled up and stuffed into the tailpipe of the car. Is that the exhaust? Yeah. Yeah. Again, strange little detail. Doesn't quite Why make would sense. It be there? Yeah. Unusual. Another kind of strange occurrence was during the flight when Murray's boyfriend was coming back from his hometown to Haverville. Um, he turned his phone off completely during the flight, but at some point he'd received a voicemail that he believed to be the sound of Murray crying. He said it just sounded, for the majority of the voicemail, was breathing, and then towards the end was just someone uncontrollably sobbing. That's terrifying. Which, when he was flying over, was the day after the car accident. The call was traced, obviously not to her mobile because that hadn't been used, but a prepaid, like, public phone card that had been issued to the American Red Cross. That's really strange. Really strange. So, after all of this extensive police work, the case went cold. Um, in 2005, which was almost a year after the disappearance, um, someone had logged into a message board called Not Without Peril, which was the book about mountain climbing that had been found in her car. Okay. Part of the thread on this message board was a discussion about her disappearance, where one user had claimed to have seen a black backpack left at like a public restroom about 30 miles away from the crash site. In the All Points Bulletin, Marie had been described as wearing dark jeans, dark coat, and a black backpack. Strange. Yeah. Um, the attorney at the time stated that law, law enforcement were aware of the backpack, but would not disclose whether it had been taken for forensic testing. So that's a no. That's a no. <laughs> <laughs> um, an investigative journalist um, has written a book about the disappearance of Mara and at some point during his investigation he received an email with the subject stop looking oh from an email account registered to Ray Rumau which is an anagram of Mara Murray oh I can't do anagrams it blows my mind when people my brain no, doesn't work like no, that. No, mine either. Even with me looking at the words now, the names are next to each other. And I'm like, oh, what is the Y? I can't do it. And the email had nothing in the subject apart from a list of coordinates. The coordinates lead to the north slope of a mountain that's in an area called the Desolation Trail. Yeah. The journalists believe that whoever sent the email was kind of insinuating that the coordinates were where her body could be found. Okay. He didn't go, but he alerted police 
and there was kind of a huge volunteer search party. They went to find the body, but they turned back because of really heavy snow conditions, and no one has been to look since. They seem to be given up awfully fast for things like that. They do. Then later on in 2004, which again was a year after the disappearance, um, a man had come up to Marie's father in the street, handed him a really rusty, stained knife, and said, this belongs to my brother. His brother had a criminal past and lived less than a mile from where Marie's car had crashed. He just walked up to him in the street? Yep. Walked up to him in the street. Presented him a knife? Yep, just in his bare hands. Take this rusty knife. It belonged to my brother. What on earth? Weird. This whole thing is weird. At the time of Marie's disappearance, this man's brother and his girlfriend had said to be acting very strangely, kind of whispering about bodies and crime, things like that. <laughs> but they were often said to be acting very strangely. Days after Murray's father gained possession of the knife, the man who owned the knife, this guy's brother, then got rid of his car under suspicious circumstances and again was acting very strangely about the whole situation. But people were claiming that he was doing so in order to claim a reward. He was trying to set up kind of false evidence in the hope that their family could gain money by saying it was their weird brother. Okay. So it looked like they were setting up. He had a history of drug abuse. He'd been acting suspicious at the time of the disappearance. Yeah. It was easy to plant all this false evidence and say, this knife, yeah. this car. Plus there's no body, so we don't really know if exactly. she's dead, if it was a knife, if it wasn't. So that turned up nothing of particular strong evidence but it stayed in a lot of people's minds. So then in October of 2006, so this is now nearly three years after she had disappeared, that volunteer group led a two-day search and they wanted to search kind of the radius of where her car had disappeared or where she had disappeared after the car accident. Um, approximately a mile from the crash site, cadaver dogs had identified the presence of remains in a house. The house used to belong to the rusty knife brother man. Oh. But he since no longer lived there. A sample of the carpet from the house was taken because that seemed to be what the dogs were interested in. And it was taken to the police but results were never released to the public. This is really strange. It's very um, ambiguous. Like, like hey, we found this, we're doing this. Result unknown. Yeah, it's very unknown. In 2012, almost seven years to the day of her disappearance on Route 112, a YouTube account was created called 112 Dirt Bag and it shows a video of an anonymous man laughing in the shadows. It's just, that's all the video is. 
that's all that account has ever created, posted this video, nothing since. Yeah. On the mere anniversary of her disappearance. During any kind of public appeal, Marie's father believed that she'd been kidnapped and always referred to people as dirtbags. He was the dirtbag who had taken his daughter. He was the dirtbag oh, who's okay. hurt her. And in combination, Route 112 was the road that she disappeared at. Yeah. So that led to a lot of suspicion of this username, 112 Dirtbag. And the creator of the video was never identified, but it is still available to watch. Is it? And it's very creepy. Did you watch it? I didn't watch it. But when I was kind of researching, I looked at the thumbnail of the video. Yeah. And this and is one enough. of the things. Yeah, I was telling you that when I looked at crime scene photos and when I was kind of looking at this stuff, it all seems like such a conspiracy that I expected I expected it to just start playing by itself and something really creepy yeah. to happen. But no, I decided not to watch that video. But throughout all this, Marie's father still hasn't given up. He still wants to find what happened to her. So in February of 2019, the 15th anniversary of her disappearance, Fred Murray gave a statement to say that he believes his daughter has died. Oh. He still has suspicions about the near, like the nearby house where yeah. the dogs kind of identified some kind of remains. And he really strongly believes that that's where... She had died. Yeah. And then in April, the house went up for sale and the prospective new owners of the house allowed people to come in and do kind of excavation work to see if there's anything at all in this house. I couldn't buy that house knowing that that's happened. I feel like you could. But do you know that anything happened? It would no, I guess not. It would be the sniffer dogs that um could have dogs, you. yeah. That they went over to a specific piece of carpet mm-hmm. and then they picked up that carpet. I guess if you if they found something, then absolutely I could live there, but not knowing whether something's there or not. Yeah. I think that's the bit that creeps me out. That's worse for you. I think so. Okay, okay. So, unfortunately, after they conducted a full excavation, they found absolutely nothing in that particular spot other than what appeared to be some old piping. Oh, okay. So, to this day, her father is convinced that she was involved in some kind of either kidnapping or murder and that... Unfortunately, she's been a victim of opportunism. They've seen a young girl in distress. They've taken her. Yeah. What I find really interesting about this case is that there are so many theories out there and so much more unusual evidence. The stuff that I've talked about was only things that I could reference and source. They're like police reports and things that I thought were kind of strong evidence. There is so much more. In 2012, loads of YouTube videos appeared with kind of strange cryptic codes and messages that people were trying to decipher that they thought was almost like a treasure hunt 
to try and find her. A lot of people have found evidence, but I'm not sure how true this is, okay. of her having a little bit of a criminal background and some of the wrongdoing. They think that she's run away to Canada to try and escape some kind of past. That investigative journalist spent a lot of time looking into her emails to her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. He believed that they had been engaged, but that he was abusive. Okay. And that she tried to run away to get away from him. But still, to this day, I think, if I'm not wrong, it's like a $40,000 reward for any information that can help find her. But there are thousands of videos, of websites, of books, of blogs, trying to figure out what happened to Maura Murray, and none of us know. That's so creepy. She's literally just disappeared off the face of the earth. Oh, that's sad. Oh, there is conspiracies, though. So many. Shall I find some weird ones? Yes, go for it. So the way that I found, like, originally found out about this mystery that I've been talking about for years because I find it so interesting, was on the subreddit Unresolved Mysteries. And it's now become such like an internet phenomenon that there is an entire subreddit just dedicated and it's just called Find Maura Murray. And it's full of kind of people bringing forth what they think is information or kind of their own ideas on what happened. I love internet sleuths. Me too. Because some people are just crackpots. Yeah, <laughs> And then some people you can tell have such an interest and a background in this kind of thing. So even just scrolling through the Maura Murray page, there's questions that people have posed. Was it Maura even driving that night? Um, a red truck was seen by a witness and a picture of a similar truck was found at the house where they searched for her remains. Some people have questioned, was it a murder for hire? There's so many different conspiracies and like thoughts of what happened people are talking about the unusual alibi for her boyfriend before and after her disappearance yeah is really interesting there's a lot of rabbit holes that you can go down with this one okay you just get lost yeah i find it interesting how she crashes this car both airbags have gone out just had to smash a window to get out, I assume, which is why that one was possibly. But then someone is there, a guy, a bus driver, offering to help, mm-hmm. offering to call the police. And she's so adamant against it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, well, I really enjoyed that. And you've told me it before, mm. but not in that much detail. I don't think I knew. You told me about the knife, I think. But it was so long ago, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Mad that I didn't know that one. It's so funny because things are such high profile. But then living across this side of the pond, when they happen in America, you often don't find out that much about them. Yeah. Unless it's kind of related to someone in the UK. Or it's massive, like a prolific serial killer. Like um, Golden State Killer when he was found. But it's heartbreaking. And her dad, bless him. He... For so many years, never gave up hope. I want to have to come to terms with this. Yeah. 
and then has recently had to say, now it's been 15 years, there's no trace of her. She's gone. Yeah. Oh, poor man. Mm. Do you feel angry that you don't have an answer? Have I wound you up with an unsolved mystery? Nah, it's not anger. It's just like, I just want to know. Mm-hmm. But that one, not so much, because there's so many things going on. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's so different to normal things. Like, if it was just kind of people striking on opportunity, why would she have packed all of her stuff and tried to rent an apartment somewhere else? Why would she have brought all that alcohol? Why would she have said no to the bus stop driver and then walk through a forest? Mm-hmm. To then just disappear at the end of the road? Had she been picked up? Did she plan to be picked up? <gasps> you don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I think next week I might do a mystery. Ooh. Or a cold, cold, cold case. And see how Ooh, that okay. goes. So my story this week is Dr. Death. Okay. Do you know who that is? No. I didn't either. Apparently this is his nickname. Um, I feel like I would have heard that. Yeah. Because he's really prolific. It's Harold Shipman. Oh, okay. And people call him Dr. Death. I haven't But I didn't that. know that. No, and especially because there's a podcast out right now, which is really good, about a man that people refer to as Dr. Death. He's actually such a bad doctor that he, um, check it out, man, it's really Ooh. quite interesting, where he did procedures on things and pretty much just killed everyone that he tried to operate on. Oh, wow. Um, you'd love that. Very ah, gory. Yeah, but I love, I really like macabre disgusting yeah. story I love the fact that you used to watch live um, what was it? live operations oh god yeah <laughs> I just crank the chest open the sound of like people popping off bits of skull and like when they have that crank that opens up people's ribs it's really interesting it's so interesting but disgusting. I'd rather watch Grey's Anatomy where I know it's not real <laughs> oh. and have sexy Patrick Dempsey. Mm. McSteamy. Yeah. McSteamy. No, McSteamy. Who's McSteamy? The other guy, the plastics guy. Mark. He's a good looking man as well. I like that. <laughs> I like Grey's Anatomy. Um, I did get lost down a rabbit hole, just before I start this, of, have you seen the real Doctor? Like, the real Doctor McDreamy? No. So there's an actual Doctor in America who's, like, gorgeous. And he watches medical programs and he like says it from a medical side mm-hmm. and he's like, they'll be halfway through doing something and he'll just pause it and they'll be like, I'm just going to stop you there. Absolutely not the case. <laughs> and it's really interesting <laughs> to see how, um, like how sometimes it's really super, super accurate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not. And uh, other times he'll be watching something and he'll stop it there and he'll be like, ooh, I think it's this. And then they don't have a clue what's going on. And did and he, he get knows, it? Yeah. No. Clever. clever man. Very clever man. Um, he also does it with The Good Doctor, where I don't know whether you've watched that. I have seen that. I cried so much. I don't know why. <laughs> you know I cry at everything. But <laughs> I was sitting with my brother and I was just like, tears streamed down my face. He was like, what are you crying at now? <laughs> it's just so sad. <laughs> no. Anyway, so who is Harold Shipman? Harold Frederick Shipman also known as Fred to most of his mm. colleagues, 
um, was born in 1946 in Nottingham, England. So his mother was very uppity. I'm not sure that's Ooh, a word, but Denny uses that word quite a lot. So I thought I'd slip it in. Um, so she was very proper and thought of herself as very, like, much a better person than the people that were surround mm. like she surrounded herself with. Um, and she also believed that a family was better than those around her as well. Okay. So even in the neighbourhood, she brought her kids up to believe that they were better than everyone else. Mm. Right, congratulations, Vera. You've raised yourself. Yeah. A narcissist. Um, and she passed this on to Shipman. Um, she was deciding who she could, ha- who he could hang out with. He was originally like really quite a bright kid. Um, he went to something called High Pavement Grammar School, which is apparently very... Well was, to do. Yeah, and he was the only um, sibling out of his siblings <laughs> to be sent to that grammar school. <laughs> Good England, Amy. Um, but he didn't make friends there, and he didn't join in. Hmm. Even though he excelled at like football and rugby, which you would think would make him quite popular yeah, in terms of everyday. Yeah, right? Hmm. Um, and he was known to be really competitive and like always wanted to be the best. But he didn't show interesting girls or anything like that. He was just quite happy with himself and with his sports. Okay. Um, at the age of 17, um, he lost his mother to cancer. And he was her carer. Hmm. Um, she would have a nurse come in morning, night, and give her morphine shots to make her comfortable. Mm-hmm. Morphine injections to make her comfortable. Um, Shipman would watch her getting these injections and kind of watch the immediate relief that would that the pain would subside in her body. Have you ever had morphine? I've not, no. I know you have. Oh. <laughs> not good? It's less... I think it affects everybody differently because of the way that your body... You know more about this than me. <laughs> but the way that your body breaks it down. Yes. I think people have more of a tolerance than other people do. Absolutely, yeah. And the second I had any morphine, I'm no longer human. I'm some kind of, like, jelly person. (laughs) And you've just lost all understanding of who you are. I was just mentally a puddle. Could you not make any kind of thought consistent? I could make noise and I could speak. Yeah. And I'm in no pain. I'm like elated but I'm very gone mentally so yeah so she um used to get that morning and night oh god yeah um but she eventually died on June the 21st 1963 and um, in the documentary I watched one of the guys he went to school with asked him about his weekend so this is when he was about 17 yeah 17 um I was like, like, what did you do this weekend? And he goes, oh, my mum died. And he was like, oh, uh, what did you do? Are you all right? And he was like, I went out for a run. Apparently he goes out like 10pm and just keeps on running until like 2am. And I run when I'm in a bad mood. Yeah, you're giving me a face of this is really <laughs> weird. But you've also been known to run at like 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> In the dark, against the seafront. Yeah, against all of my parents. Amy, don't go out. I know, but I just... Amy, if you run, you will die. 
yeah, I know, I'm the worst for it. And I definitely think that he didn't have a lot of friends. So I imagine he couldn't really go to anyone. Mm-hmm. He didn't really know what to do. She's there in the house. Get away from the house. You run. And I'm definitely a runner of situations and problems. So mm-hmm. I can see that. And people deal with grief in different ways as well. Absolutely. And I think he might have been angry that actually he couldn't really help his mother. Um, and this made him actually want to become a doctor. So he applied to Leeds University Medical School. But due to the fact that he was super intelligent when he was younger. But then when he started at this grammar school, it kind of plateaued off. Okay. Um, so due to the fact that now he wasn't really that intelligent. It's not like a high achiever anymore. Yeah. He failed the test to get into medical school the first year round. Mm. Which, to be fair, difficult. I don't yeah. know what it was like back then, but I know now it's super difficult to get into medical school. Um, but eventually he got in the year after. So he's about 19 at this point. Um, and it was on the way into Leeds City Centre where he met Primrose Oxtoby. What a name. And again, one more time. Primrose Oxtoby. 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 Primrose Oxtoby. Oh, she sounds very, um... Proper. Yes. Yeah, doesn't she? Someone his mother would love. Um... And she, he met her on this bus from Weatherby. Yes. Because I love Weatherby. Weatherby is your dream destination. <laughs> it's my favourite service station. <laughs> so I, Amy once asked me, what is your favourite service station? And I was under the impression that people didn't have, I certainly didn't, and didn't think that other people had... A service station that they considered a favourite over yeah. others. Yeah. How wrong I was. So wrong. Because when we approached Weatherby service station for the couple of miles heading up to it, Amy couldn't stop grinning and dancing and singing about That's Weatherby. So related. It's her favourite, I dare say, favourite place. <laughs> Above everything else. You travel the world, Weatherby is where the heart is. I thoroughly enjoy Weatherby, I really do. It's got its cracking service station. If you're ever in the UK and you pass it, just take a take a diversion in. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, and then we found out when we went down, that was on the way down to Manchester. Um, and then when we were in Manchester, we also found out that people had, oh no, it was in um, the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special when he texted me and was like, oh my God, people do have service stations. It's their favourite one. I was like, I told you. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> so on the way to Leeds City Centre mm-hmm. on a bus, and he makes from Weatherby. From Re- well, I'm getting so excited. <laughs> Love it. Um, Weatherby! Where, <laughs> where he met Primrose Oxtoby um, on the way into Leeds. She was a window dresser in the city. And I was meant to look up what that is. Do you think it's like dressing mannequins? That's what I thought, yeah. I could be so wrong. No, yeah, it's absolutely correct. Um, thank you to Smart Lookup. It they arrange displays of goods in shops and windows, or within the window itself. So I wonder if she did that in like loads of different shops, Ooh. rather than just being employed by the yeah. shop and then popping some clothes on mannequins. Because they probably in the store, they probably do that once every couple of weeks, if not months. Yeah. So you'd only work like one day a month. If you only worked at one store. 
Yeah, so you rotate around mm. everyone. Yeah. Important details. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they then went out. They kind of, on this bus, back and forth every day, start talking, start chatting. Do you want to go out? Yes, I do. Eventually, at, I've actually typed 117 in here. It's not the case. At 17, she <laughs> fell pregnant with their first child. Oh. Um, so really quite soon. Um, they got married on the 5th of November in 1966 when Primrose was six months pregnant. Oh, of course. So for shipment, that could not have been easy. Try and, like, just get married, juggle on bringing up a child, and as well as attending medical mm-hmm. school, like, massive things. Um, but on the 23rd of July, 1970, he registers with the JMC, which is a general medical council. So he's like a doctor now? Yes. I've done it. Barely passing his finals. Oh, okay. So it's very... Um, so he manages to get a job at Pontefract General Hospital and he, through his time there, specialised in peds, obzingyne and obstetrics. Okay. Um, Baby things. Yeah, but then he also kind of did rounds on different wards as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's believed that he was 25 years old when he started his murder spree. So pretty much as soon as he's in this hospital and within four years of working at the hospital, he'd certified the deaths of 133 patients. (gasps) Um, It's now clear he's suspected of killing at least 23 of those people, but you just can't tell that long ago. Mm. But they suspect 23 out of the 133 there. So four years, that's a lot of people to murder. but during this job, I've said he gave birth to the second child. During this job, <laughs> um, Primrose gave birth to a second child. Um, during this time, he started abusing the drug pethidine. He was really quite stressed. He had two children mm-hmm. working in a hospital, which is ungodly hours. So is that like speed? Yes. Okay. Actually, absolutely. Um which is a synthetic opioid. It's really similar to morphine, but mm-hmm. uh, and it's mostly used in pain relief during labour. Okay. Um, in healthcare patients who are given this, they're monitored very closely because it's so highly addictive. Yeah. Uh, Shipman was very good at hiding this addiction. Ooh. And he used to inject it, as most addicts are, to be fair, mm-hmm. inject it in places, sites that you're not going to see, between mm-hmm. the fingertips, toes, yeah, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, due to him now having two children to look after, he wanted a more stable job, so he became a junior general practitioner at Todd, Todd Morden Group Medical Practice in 1974. Fantastic. Honestly, these words are not easy. Pontefract and Todd Morden. Have you been to Pontefract? No, have you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you know what a Pontefract cake is? No. Oh, okay. It's like a lick... I'm probably so wrong. But when I was younger, my dad took us to Pontefract for a holiday. Of course. And I think the only thing they're ever known for, apart from possibly Harold Chipman, 
is um, Pontefract cakes. Okay. That aren't cakes. I was thoroughly misled as a child and still holding a little bit of resentment to this day. Oh, see, I'd be all about that. They're licorice. Oh, no, no, I'm out. Some kind of horrid, black, sticky thing that they call a cake. And that's what they're famous for. There's a big factory. We went. Not a good time. Yep. How old were you? Like four, five. Didn't want to be there. Thought we were going to like a cake factory. Thoroughly misled. That's, that's hilarious. And that is such a your family kind of holiday as well, can we just say? A strange yep. twist to a normal family holiday. We're going to a cake factory. It's not cake. It's licorice. And we're going to enjoy it. You're five. Let's go. <laughs> so it's here where he is thought to have killed around eight patients. Yeah. Oh. And he also got the nickname Dr. Fett. 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 So, I know it sounds strange, right? I was like, oh. F-E-T? P-A-G-T? Oh, Fett, of course. So going to make sense, though. Because a rumour started going round that you could get drugs from him. Okay. If you needed to. So, people often couldn't get into his practice because of the amount of people that were waiting there for a prescription of this highly addictive drug, amphetamine. Ah, Dr. Dr. Fett. Right? Of course. Um, this drug induces euphoria, but it's also really good for weight loss. <laughs> so, um, as is meth. Yes. <laughs> Either way, don't do it. Yeah. But there was loads of people standing in line waiting to see this guy. So, mm-hmm. obviously, colleagues are getting suspicious. Um, and this is more well known as speed in the streets. <laughs> Yeah, sound cool. He did. Fantastic. So in 1975, his addiction is at an all-time high. It got so bad that there was a 999 call made as he had a blackout in his home after hitting his head following a collapse. Oh. He somehow managed to convince his colleagues that he had epilepsy. Okay. So... All this happens and he's like, oh yeah, so I totally forgot to tell you. I'm epileptic. And they were like, oh, no worries. <laughs> Not a bother. No. Oh. Forget I mentioned it. Yeah. Carry on. Man, that's right. Here's some phenytoin. You'll be all right. Um, so a year later, some of his colleagues noticed that there's a lot of prescriptions for a large amount of pethidine. Okay. For himself. Well, the prescriptions are all for different patients, mm-hmm. but they're all signed by Shipman. Mm. Um, and they were often maybe patients that needed it, but mm-hmm. didn't need that much, or patients that didn't need it at all. Given large doses. Yeah, right? Mm. So they spoke to the people as they were picking up other prescriptions and asked them what they were taking the pethidine for. Yeah. They were like, what pethidine? <gasps> And thus started an investigation. So, after an inquiry, he admits that this is what's happened. He's allergic to pethidine. He's done this with all of these prescriptions. And he is admitted into a drug rehab program. Okay. And he receives a small fine of £600. And a conviction for forgery. Okay. Um, after a discussion with the GMC, he's told that he could he could practice again. Yeah, right. I know. We're very forgiven, the healthcare professionals. 
Um, we a should, man who barely yeah. passed his exams to become a medical professional has been seen to abuse drugs. Yeah. We shouldn't be this forgiven. Um, but anyway, they're like, yeah, absolutely, get back on board. Just don't become a GP again. <laughs> so, because you can only forge things when you're a GP. Of course. Slipped my mind. Not that any other doctor can give prescriptions. No, apparently not. Um, but naturally, um, he applies to become a GP. At the Donnybrook Medical Centre. Old habits die hard. Apparently so. Um, And the people that hired him were quite happy to overlook this um, drug addiction and this conviction. As I say, really quite forgiven. It's normally if you're quite apologetic about it or if you... Show remorse. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like in court where if you murder someone and you are upset about it or it was an accident and you show that you've got something there that that is regret Mm -hmm. they're a lot more forgiven in their sentence Mm -hmm. whereas when you're like yeah no it didn't happen oh it did happen so what you get normally get like a larger sentence Mm. um because you're inhuman and you can't empathize um that worries me (laughs) you're going down for life i am (laughs) when Mm. you finally snap yes (laughs) Um, Any day now. Not now, please. <laughs> um, so people there say that he's super hardworking. Um, he's trusted amongst both patients and colleagues. However, he is said to be super arrogant. Uh, yeah, back to Vera. What a bitch. Um, but he remains there for almost two decades. Wow. Yeah, right? Such a long time. Um, during this time, a local undertaker's daughter actually notices that Shipman had a very high mortality rate. And... and back again. Mm-hmm. His daughter... The undertaker's daughter made a joke like, oh, back again, are we, Shipman? Another body. Like, that kind of thing. Not to him, but to our, to our father. Oh. Who... um. It was kind of all in good jest. And then our father was like, hmm, actually, now that you mention it, that's not good. Because the people were kind of found in the same way as well, like fully dressed, leaning like on a sofa, on a couch, like not in bed. Yeah. Like as if they were on death's door, like kind of up and about and then just sat somewhere fully closed as if they were just about to go out for a regular day and so the undertaker actually brings this up to Harold Shipman um but Shipman reassures him that it's completely normal he's mostly helping palliative care patients okay like older aging patients naturally your numbers will be higher yeah right so the undertaker's like sweet that's grand and he drops it but Dr Susan Booth who was a coroner also noticed that the pattern was a little bit disturbing, but she does the right thing and she alerts the coroner's office mm-hmm. and he's contacted by the police. There's another inquiry, but since all of the records, all of his medical records are in order, he's cleared from everything and they're like, that's fine. This is so frustrating because if they'd just contacted the GMC, 
even checked to see if he had a criminal record yeah. or anything, they would have heard about these prior convictions, his addiction, his forgery, mm-hmm. everything that shows him to not be a good doctor. It's later found out that he had altered the medical records of patients to corroborate the causes of their death. Mm, okay. Um, which is so bloody frustrating because people were picking this up mm-hmm. and people were... Like, the Undertaker noticed, this coroner noticed, people noticed. But because no one took it all the way, Mm -hmm. nothing was really done about it because it wasn't fully reported properly. Mm. Um, So throughout his career, it's impossible to say how many people he actually killed. But it's believed that he's one of the most prolific serial killers ever. Never mind in the UK. Um, But definitely the most prolific serial killer Mm -hmm. that we've had in the UK. Um... So how did Schiffman murder his victims? Drug lesson. Woo! When he would go to patients' houses, he would administer six times the legal dose of diamorphine. Okay. So morphine is an opioid pain medication, which is derived from the seed of an opiate poppy. Mm -hmm. Um, It acts directly on the central nervous system, and it's to decrease the feeling of pain. It can be used for both acute pain and chronic pain. So um, sudden pain and kind of palliative care, got yeah. cancer, long-term pain. Um, and it's believed Shipman injected this um, into the veins, like under the skin. Mm. I'm going to say under the skin. Um, <laughs> but diamorphine is twice as potent as morphine. Yeah. So... The usual dose, according to the BNF, which is the, I really should know this, British National Formulary, is five milligrams of diamorphine hourly. Mm -hmm. Shipman gave 30. So the body of a healthy elderly patient also reacts differently to that of a younger person who's in pain. Just Mm -hmm. as you were saying, different people experience different um, reactions to the drug. So to be fair, it's probably more than actually what six times their body would require. Yeah. Although morphine is used for its analgesic effect, taking away that pain, it also causes respiratory respiratory depression, mm-hmm. which basically slows down your breathing. Given this dose, the breathing would have probably slowed within two to five minutes of the drug taking effect on the body. Um, this would starve the brain of oxygen, so within three minutes of the breathing stopping, the brain would die. Oh. This is actually reversible with a drug called naloxone. Mm-hmm. Any doctor or any healthcare professional would know that if breathing slowed down after administering an opioid, mm-hmm. it would be due to toxicity. Okay. And you should give naloxone. Like, you get that taught. We get taught it straight away at uni. Um, and I checked that this drug was approved in 1971. And is on who's, so the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. Because mm-hmm. it's so important. Yeah. Um, so this was right when Shipman was starting his, to, um, starting his career slash murder spree. Depending on how you want to define yeah. it, I guess. It's a job, it's a hobby. <laughs> so the death that actually got Shipman caught was that of Kathleen Grundy. She was an active, wealthy 81-year-old widow who was found dead following a visit from Shipman. Her daughter, Angela Woodruff, 
was advised by Shipman that an autopsy was needed. That an autopsy wasn't needed. Mm. Even though she was perfectly healthy. <laughs> so Kathleen is buried in accordance with Angela's wishes. But Angela still refuses to believe that her perfectly healthy mother just dropped down dead like one day. Stop breathing, gun. Yeah. So Angela was actually Angela was actually her mother's solicitor. So she was super shocked to find out that her mother had a second will, which was left the bulk of her estate to the lovely Dr. Harold Shipman. Suspicious? Yes. Oh. So Angela noticed. Harold. <laughs> right. You just, you would think. Oh, you've been you? doing this for a while. You've got a good. Yeah, you're like 30 years down the line. Yeah. 20, 25 years down the line. Mm-hmm. But, um. Rookie mistake. Angela noticed it and she says, like, in the will, it states, I leave my house. Mm. Kathleen actually owned two houses. Oh, and she didn't and, write this. Yeah, and Angela said she wouldn't not specify which house she meant. Mm. So Angela already being suspicious, and it, this just makes it so much worse. Um, she's now convinced that Shipman actually murdered her mother and that this will's a forgery and that he would benefit from her death due to this will mm-hmm. that came out of the blue. 20 minutes before she died. Right, yeah. So she alerts the police and Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles looks at the evidence presented to him and within very, like very, very soon, Kathleen's body is exhumed, Mm -hmm. which is horrible, but... You want justice? Yeah, absolutely. you're a family member. Yeah. It's upsetting, but you want, you want the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So the post-mortem revealed that she died of a morphine overdose that was administered three hours before her death, which is just around the time that her lovely doctor turned up for a random visit out of nowhere. Oh. So you would do this quite often where you just like pop up and be like, hello, just going to check you all right. Have this pain medication. Um, I'm not feeling any pain. But this is the thing. People trust their doctors. Mm-hmm. People trust... You just expect that if they're in a uniform, if they're a GP, mm-hmm. whatever, they know what they're doing. So, shortly after this, Shipman's home is raided. Mm-hmm. They find medical records, a huge collection of jewellery, an old typewriter that it is later proved that this is what was used to create the will. Mm. And after he's arrested, the jewellery, there's actually 10k worth of jewellery. Ah found in his house and photos were taken of the jewellery mm-hmm. and put out to families of victims to be like is this yours do you know what this is but it was mostly like wedding bands and things that weren't massively um distinguishable yeah so not much of it was claimed back when police started looking into these medical records that they found in his house it became pretty obvious, pretty fast, that this wasn't a one-time thing, and that there was tons of manpower, and then, and then tons of manpower was put into investigating the deaths of all of Shipman's patients. Mm-hmm. The only issue is that when his patients died, he was very good at convincing the family 
to create, create, Mm-mm. cremate mm. their loved ones. Which is great for him because then obviously no body, no evidence, nothing that can be kind of flipped back to mm-hmm. him. And if there was pushback from families, he would actually falsify records to show that they shouldn't investigate the deaths further. So they should, you falsified so that there wasn't a need for a postmortem. Mm-hmm. If the family were not aware of this past medical history, that led them to their deaths. So priority was put down to patients who had died following a couple of hours after Shipman's... A surprise visit. Yeah. But also to families that weren't aware of this past medical history mm-hmm. that Harold Shipman had made up were put on the top of the pile for the investigation yep. to see if they were wrongful deaths. During the investigation, it becomes clear that Shipman had changed loads of records after the death to match the historical records. But what he didn't realise was that every time he made an edit, there would be an audit trail. Oh. So the, that enabled police to ascertain exactly which records had been altered mm-hmm. and at exactly what point they had been altered. But then even for the records he hasn't altered, say, unfortunately, your relative may have a history of a heart condition, he didn't need to alter those medical records, still doesn't mean that he went in and administered an overdose. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many people that he could have possibly murdered. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, So his trial starts in October of 1999. He's indicted for 16 charges. 15 of those are murders. 15. What was the other one? One of them was forgery, so that oh. was the will. Okay. Fair. The prosecution believed that Shipman did it, the murders, as he wanted to be able to control life and death. So did he never explain why? No. To remained, um, pleaded not guilty throughout. <laughs> Remain, he was clear as day. He was like, I'm innocent. Not me. Not at all. Yeah. Arrogance, though, isn't it? Narcissism. Oh, yes. They just think that they're untouchable. Um, and the prosecution believed that he was lying when he claims that he was acting out of compassion for these mm. dying people. Um, so like an angel of death, like I'm saving you mm. from your pain. I'll put you out of your pain. To a healthy eighty-one-year-old lady with lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. The pain of being wealthy. <laughs> She's just like oh. What do I do with this money? Go with this money. <laughs> it's like, you know what it is? He has some morphine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trial goes really well. Angela, the daughter of Kathleen Grundy, is the first witness, mm-hmm. followed by the pathologist who shows morphine toxicity in nearly every case. Um, and then they show that Kathleen never touched the will due to fingerprint analysis. Mm. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And then call on an IT analyst. Analyst who testifies that the records had been altered. Mm-hmm. So, like, prosecution... Prostic- oh, my God, I'm having a stroke. Prostitution. <laughs> Pros- prostitution. Kraken. <laughs> so, um, prosecution had a cracking case, mm-hmm. really tight. Tight prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> so, they then bring up tons of families who... T- <laughs> right. They then bring up tons of families who testified that he just had no compassion. Like, 
as a doctor mm-hmm. in that he didn't really listen to the wants of the patient's relatives at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they also described that he wouldn't try to revive people, and this is disgusting. He instead would call emergency services. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out that he didn't actually call emergency services and would just pretend <gasps> until the patient actually died and then would hang up. So that's what I was talking about with the naloxone. Uh-huh. You would spot that. If you yeah. were there, you would know. Could have done something about it. Didn't do anything mm-hmm. about it. Bastard. Um, phone records show that he never made a single call during the fast decline of these patients. And records are shown of how he used to either prescribe to patients that didn't need them or mm. over-prescribe morphine in patients that did need it. Um, so throughout this trial, Shipman is just as arrogant as ever and is constantly changing his stories. Like, they'll throw him a curveball, he'll dodge around it. Mm. He thinks, sorry, he dodges around it. Um, which just didn't help him with the jury at all. People are testifying to say that he's this arrogant, horrible man with no compassion and he's sitting there being that person that Mm -hmm. they're saying that he is. So on the 31st of January, going to go with 2000, I've put 2020. Really, I've done well, have I? I was so tired this this last night. Uh, So on the 31st of January, 2000, he is found guilty of all 15 murders and of the one forgery. Mm -hmm. The judge passes 15 life sentences as well as four years for the forgery, which was deemed a whole life sentence and effectively removed any possibility of parole at all. Um, And he went to Durham Prison, which is our closest Category B jail, Mm -hmm. so he's quite close to us. Um, In later investigations, an audit by Professor Richard Baker of the University of Leicester estimates he may have been responsible for at least 236 deaths. Oh, catastrophic. And all oh without God. people knowing. And still now, people to this day don't know. Um, but throughout all of this, as I said, he maintains his innocence. He was moved to Wakefield Prison three years after in 2003, mm-hmm. which allows his family to visit more. Um, it's a lot closer, so it's easier. But on January the 6th in 2004, Shipman is found hanging in a cell, having used the bed sheets tied them to the bars Mm. of his cell um so effectively killing himself um there was never known to be a funeral for shipman Mm -hmm. and people believe that his body remained in the morgue for over a year right which i didn't even know was possible i didn't but while his family waited for everything to die down Mm -hmm. and it's still to this day not known how or where his family decided to bury his body I suppose if you're his family, you still have a connection to that person. You don't want a public funeral or any yeah. kind of thing so close to when it's in the media. And they stood by him at every step of the way. They still believed that he wasn't guilty. Hmm. I feel like you couldn't. It would be hard to, as a wife of someone that you've known for 35 years, mm-hmm. to know that, like, all through the 30 years of knowing them, that they've been murdering people. You think he's a doctor, he's a good man, he helps people. Yeah. Especially if you think he helps people with like end-of-life care and he's making them comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. But 
they still believed him to the day of his death and onwards. And that is possibly the world's most prolific serial killer, mm. Dr. Harold Frederick Shipman. It's insane. Yeah, and then since then, um, we actually had a lecture in uni. Like 10 laws, I believe, mm-hmm. were put into place due to this. Wow. Like specific laws about prescriptions mm-hmm. um, of Schedule 2 drugs, Schedule 3 drugs, like controlled drugs. Yeah. Like morphine, like... Um, I've forgotten the name of every drug ever. <laughs> Buprenorphine, things like that, mm-hmm. which are highly addictive, but also highly dangerous. They're really kept under control yeah. and we now have proper thorough records that people have to sign. Things are measured. Like you need to... It would be very difficult to do something like this now. Yeah. But that's because of everything that he did mm. in that time. Um, it was a great lecture. Honestly, I turned up and it was like, Harold Chipman. And I was like, oh! <gasps> <laughs> you actually listened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the one lecture I've listened to in the past three years. <laughs> what? I'm a great student. <laughs> so yes, that's everything. Ooh. So recommendations wise, I have been watching on Netflix um, the documentary about Aaron Hernandez. Mm-hmm. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Yes. So I didn't. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And it takes you through the life of this guy who at the time is America's golden boy. He played for the Patriots. And it, even at, like, the youngest age of 22, had scored his first touchdown in a Super Bowl. Like, phenomenal American football player. But then, when he's not on the pitch, it does, like, the worst things and end up being incarcerated for murder. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of this at all. No way. No. So, um, I put it on. And Alex doesn't really love it when I watch. Alex and my brother. And he doesn't really love serial killers or things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> I'd watched, there's three parts to it. It's like three hours. Did it all in a day. Al comes downstairs at like an hour in. Sits down and is like, we're having a chat. And then he starts going, oh, so who is he? And oh, what? And he was like, <laughs> proper got into it. Um, so I would definitely recommend that, even mm-hmm. if you've heard the story before. I think I have. He had a prior conviction in some kind of murder trial before, didn't he? Yeah, so that's uh-huh. the one that he's incarcerated in. Yeah. And then they do a trial after that one, but for a murder that was committed beforehand, which yeah. they only found because of this murder that oh. he committed. But it was, it was madness. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of things in his past that kind of shocked me. Um, but yes, definitely give that a watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In such high production that we have today. <laughs> my mic has just popped off my top. <laughs> <laughs> We're so good at this. <laughs> We're going far. Oh. So, is there anything... Is there anything that you've been watching? Uh, this week I've been busy. I haven't had a lot of time for TV or films... I've only been listening to a lot of podcasts. I kind of have them on while I work. What like? I also this week I've been listening to Skinwalker. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. How good! I love it. For people who haven't <laughs> listened, it's a true crime podcast. It's hosted by a lovely guy called JS, who each week 
tells a different Scottish murder. He does tell some really interesting cases that I haven't heard of before. He puts a lot of effort into each story and there's a lot of facts, there's a lot of knowledge there, but it's told in such an interesting and engaging way. Yes, and he's does this like really cool narrative delivery style, which has really mysterious music in the background. Oh, it's really atmospheric, isn't it? Yeah, mm. and it proper pulls you into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's mad, because you were saying before that you have not heard these either. No, no, no. Neither have I. And we live pretty close to Scotland. I think mm-hmm. we're the most northern city mm-hmm. next to it. And I've never heard a single one of these cases. Mm-hmm. So definitely give that a listen. Yeah, I really recommend. It's good. And then I think that's us. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We hope you really enjoyed. We really want this podcast to do well, so if you could leave a review in iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we would really appreciate it. If you like us and you want to see a little bit more of what we do and kind of how we operate and how we work, we've got our Instagram page, which is we are underscore foliadur. And we also put on photos of the things that we talk about each episode, which is really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, guys, check it out. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.